in the summer of 2003, um, I was minding my own business quietly, finishing my term as uh, ambassador in Syria, uh, when I was contacted by the Foreign Office, who said, would I like as a reward for um, uh, sticking it up for three years in Syria, including the traumatic period of the Iraq War, uh, to go to Basra, um, where they needed somebody to be the Social Governor and Coordinator for the new Coalition Provisional Authority in Basra. Uh, of course, I left at the chance to meet. She said yes. Um, actually, I asked for a few seconds to think about it. Um, that appointment um, was uh, an initiative by the then newly arrived uh, administrator of the CPA, Ambassador Bremer, uh, of well-known uh, repute. Um, I think. It was arguably, we'll have time to discuss this, but one of his more enlightened decisions in a way, um, to have somebody really representing him in each of the 18 Iraqi provinces to try and bring uh, the aims and work of the coalition authority uh, closer to the people, especially at the provincial level. Uh, that was the origin of my appointment. Um, I'll gloss over the, uh, as we're limited on time, the, uh, the, the detail of the, uh, the first period in Basra, where I arrived in September. Um, it was a pretty chaotic state. Uh, the Coalition Provisional Authority, grand though it may sound, I should say CBA South, as we were in, uh, in Basra, covering the four southern provinces, uh, was housed in the former electricity company building with uh, still notices on, on the walls directing customers to the accounts department where they were to settle their bills. Um, the accommodation was pretty awful. I was one of the lucky ones who had a room to myself, but a lot of people were sharing, a number of uh, people sharing rooms. Uh, we had virtually no uh, IT facilities, communication facilities to speak of. Um, people were using their own Yahoo and Hotmail uh, uh, accounts. Uh, I had no actual job description other than a rather vaguely worded letter of appointment from uh, Ambassador Bremer. Um, and the civilian governorate team that I was supposed to be in charge of, uh, of that there was absolutely no sign. Uh, not a very promising start. Um, what was more, uh, there was some, let's say, puzzlement on, on the part of our CPA South, that's the body that you'll hear about uh, later on, who uh, ran the regional reconstruction effort in the four southern provinces. Um, and indeed from our military colleagues in the, uh, in the uh, Basra Brigade uh, in, in Saddam's former palace about what this new impart was really there to do. Um, the only thing I could say as consolation was that Basra itself as a city was in at least as run down and chaotic a state as the, uh, the organisation uh, I find myself working with. Um, not just because of the war, in fact, not all that much because of the war, but because the uh, South as a whole, and Basra perhaps in particular, had been pretty systematically run down for the previous 30 years, in a way as punishment from the Saddam regime for being uh, rebellious and difficult and, uh, and, and, and not, uh, not supportive of the regime. Um, however, I soon discovered we did have some uh, assets, uh, in particular, something called the Governorate Support Team, which was uh, made from, uh, formed from the, our military colleagues, a lot of them reservists with specific civilian skills, which, uh, which were a lot of help in terms of things like electricity, water systems, and so on. Um, so that was helpful. Uh, those uh, military colleagues of whom more later were doing a lot of what I believed our team, when it was constituted, would be there to do. 
Um, and, um, and indeed, the civilian component uh, recruited from London mainly, but also from Denmark, uh, the US, and Italy did start to arrive. Um, in the absence of a real job description, uh, I wrote what I would broadly describe as my own, uh, which in essence, not going through the boring detail, uh, focused on institutional development, that's to say, trying to help develop local government institutions in a situation where there hadn't really been any, because uh, the, the Ba'athist regime in Iraq, like that in Syria, and indeed in several other uh, Arab, more or less totalitarian states, was extremely centralized. The only representatives uh, who ran things locally were um, uh, members of central government ministries who were responsible for specific issues like electricity and water, but were very much central government appointments. Um, however, uh, the military in place had already made a very good start on uh, supporting the local Iraqis in forming a 25-member provincial council, which in turn elected a governor uh, who was a uh, well-respected uh, judge and former opponent of the regime, um, and with whom it became clear very quickly uh, I was going to have to work primarily to work. Um, Cutting a longish story short, by the 1st of December uh, 2003, which was the target date uh, set by London and indeed Ambassador Bremer for the governorate team, as we were called, to be in, uh, in place and functioning, uh, we did have it. We had a team of, by then, about, I suppose, 20 people, um, multinational, as I mentioned already, Danes, Italians, <coughs> Americans, Brits, and indeed some extremely able and, I should say, very brave Iraqis. Uh, so we had uh, established as, a, as an identifiable entity, um, we had started to secure some funding mainly from our colleagues in the CPA South uh, main setup for local projects directed specifically at Basra province. We even had our own communication system eventually plugged into that of uh, CPA South. Um, one of the early things that, uh, that we did, or I should say encouraged, because the Iraqis ran it primarily, was to put <coughs> central government uh, technical experts uh, who were in place that I already mentioned, and the new provincial council really in touch with each other, because there wasn't any institutional system for doing that. And it seemed to make sense that the people who were now tasked with running the province should have uh, a dialogue and liaison with the people who were trying to keep the as I said already, very run-down infrastructure, um, which again we'll hear about later, uh, working. Uh, we had also uh, been involved in advising the Iraqis on doing some initial planning, because as you can maybe imagine in a situation like that, you have inputs coming from all, all sorts of different sources, financial projects and everything else. And it seemed sensible that it should be the Iraqi system, who, as the recipients of these inputs, who should be tasked with trying to coordinate it and making sure there wasn't too much duplication. Um, and we'd also been quite heavily involved in making recommendations about projects for the much larger sums of money that were coming from the United States, uh, 18 billion, I stand to be corrected by my colleagues, dollars voted by Congress, and 2 billion or so from the government of Japan. 
we had also uh, attempted to uh, recognize, I'm sure Andrew will have more to say about this, um, the very specific character of Basra as an entrepreneurial center, historically, traditionally. It was a business place, it was, it was Iraq, outward face to the world through the port of Basra, through its business uh, enterprise. So we had set up, we managed to do a bit of rather sharp real estate uh, dealing and acquire the building that the UN had recently evacuated, which had previously been actually uh, the house of uh, the rather notorious chemical addict. Um, but uh, all traces of his, his presence have gone, and we established that as a business centre with uh, very basic internet facilities and other things. Um, uh, the, I was rather surprised that the christening of this baptism, perhaps I should say, of this uh, new, uh, rather modern facility uh, should be marked by the governor being uh, asked to sacrifice a sheep on the doorstep, um, a mark of the tradition of uh, that part of the world. Um, we had also uh, been involved in participating, find, uh, putting together a Basra representation for two big conferences in Jordan and Kuwait, respectively, um, about reconstructing Iraq and inviting the international community to get involved with doing that. Um, in all these operations, um, the key for us, I think, was to uh, try and put the Iraqis themselves in the forefront rather than being sort of colonial administrators. We've done that in Iraq before. This historical term wasn't the right moment for that. Uh, putting the governor and his um, uh, and his provincial council in the forefront, and uh, following on from that, helping them to organise elections at lower tier levels of the local government, districts and uh, parishes, and, and so on. Um, uh, something which the Iraqis, I should say, took to with great enthusiasm to the point where Mr. Bremer actually had to rein his back slightly at one point because. Um, the other, some of the other slightly more remote provinces of Iraq are finding it a bit difficult to keep up. Um, moving on into 2004, I know the time is uh, pretty short, um, the, uh, having by then discovered or learnt that um, the whole issue of dissolving the CPA and handing over to an Iraqi, interim Iraqi government was going to be brought forward by, uh, that's to say, to June 2004, um, the atmosphere became, if anything, even more frantic, trying to uh, really to leave a sensible and constructive legacy from the CPA era. Um, that meant trying to rush through the delivery of projects for which the money had already been voted, um, and from the point of view of institutions, um, uh, pushing the agenda of, uh, again, of local council elections and, uh, and trying to ensure that we were going to leave functioning uh, institutions at the local level. All that was somewhat um, made more, somewhat more difficult by the deterioration in the security situation. Uh, there were some bad guys out there who were determined that our life should be made difficult, uh, that the uh, so-called democratic experiment in Iraq should not work. Uh, in the South, that was mainly um, the Muqtada Sada and his, um, and his uh, um, the rather strange military acronym of JAM, the JSHL. Mahdi, the army of the Mahdi, who were um, at one stage even occupied the government building. We managed to get them out of there, but it was a bit tense and um, uh, setting off bombs and attacking us with mortars and such things. Um, I think I was struck during all this by how much the ordinary Iraqis that we had to deal with, both officials and uh, ordinary people, um, were really anxious not to have anything to do with this sort of the sort of extremism that those people represented. 
Um, they were glad to be, get rid of the, of the regime, which none of them had, uh, had really uh, liked. Um, they had complaints against the CPA about um, you know, the slow delivery of projects, uh, their own economic situation, uh, lack of jobs, etc. Um, but I think we at the same time did get some credit for that. Um, I just finish with uh, a couple of words because I think one of the themes of this discussion is um, mistakes that were made. I would say that the principal one was the lack of any real planning on the coalition's behalf, and I guess this applies at the overall Iraqi level as well as that of the South, but I'm focusing on the South, um, in the sense that uh, what we had hoped in our team at least was that the essence of it, that's the people who were staying on on the civilian side, the military colleagues from the government supporting who were staying anyway until the end of their uh, rotation, uh, could actually be handed over to the Iraqis as a functioning unit for promoting development, um, both institutional and, uh, and physical infrastructure in Basra. Well, that didn't happen because possibly as an inevitable counterpart of the uh, act of handing over to a, a sovereign Iraqi government, um, the foreign element, if you like, really disintegrated into its national components. Um, and uh, even with arguments about who should be in which of the premises that we've been in um, and who should have what functions and so on. And, and the, the team, which was, I thought, functioning and the, what was left of it still functioning as a, as a viable entity, was uh, pretty well broken up. Um, I think it could have provided some continuity. It could have made a, played a part in the um, uh, in leaving the, the coalition, the CPA, days with a slightly better taste in the mouths of most Iraqis. It didn't happen. Some of those who are going to talk to you stayed on after that handover and will therefore be a better place than I am to say what did actually happen and whether there were other things that went wrong. And I would just really conclude uh, by saying <coughs> that uh, none of what we did could have been done, I've already said, referred to it. Uh, without the support of our Iraqi colleagues in the, in the government team and in the CPA South and elsewhere, who I think deserve a, a considerable tribute for both their, their very hard work, their ability and their bravery. Thank you very much. Thank you, Henry. Um, we'll proceed under the same theme with uh, Mahir Adam, who's going to provide a complimentary uh, view. Mahir is a doctoral student, a candidate whose research explore, explores externally-led civil society development and the formation of Iraq's domestic NGO sector from 2003. Previously, he, had, he was a project manager for the preparation of Iraq's investment mapping program, working on behalf of the UN Industrial Development Industrial Development Organization, UNIDO, and liaising closely with the National Investment Commission in Baghdad. He has several years of experience working in the country's NGO sector in both international NGOs as well as UN agencies. He obtained a BA from SAWAS and an MSc from the LSE. Maria will be speaking about the implications of state building, particularly Iraq's exclusive uh, power arrangements and its impact on society and the country's future. Um, yeah, my name is, thank you. My name is Maria. I'm a PhD student here at SAWAS. Um, my research concerns the formation of Iraq's domestic NGO sector. Um, a lot of the CPA officials and the people working in Iraq, the foreign expertise there, were unable to actually go out uh, uh, um, on the streets and work with the people um, unless they had security. 
So a lot of money that went into the reconstruction of Iraq went into the NGO sector. That's something else I can speak about, but that's not the topic of my discussion today. So, um, so um, my um, discussion today is what uh, really went wrong, and, um, um, and I'll begin. So um, the basic thesis that I have of why Iraq is in this mess today is because it's a government that cannot govern, and its institutions are very weak. It's, there is an allocation of the state because of the application of sectarian party quotas for public office. Um, given rise to a reoccurring political crisis in Iraq. Um, political crisis in Iraq is severe and has been since 2003. Of course, we can look at it historically, and I'll have one slide to look at that. Um, the, uh, we've had elections, the first elections in January 2005, um, and even before the national elections in January 2005, the state uh, institutions were allocated, actually fought over and contested by Iraq's emerging political elites, the political parties that are now part and parcel of the government structure. Um, so this is a map of Iraq. Um, it's a nice map. Um, it shows Iraq um, with its um, different cities as one. But in reality, uh, Baghdad does not govern all of this area, and more so now since June 2014. Um, we'll see with ISIS, it's, it's actually doesn't govern uh, um, even half of this. So I'll, I'll continue with the presentation. <coughs> so 1990s, we saw the, um, the formation of more or less an independent state, the Kurdish uh, regional government, the Kurdish region of Iraq. That's three provinces in the north of the country. And um, throughout the 1990s, up to 2003, even now, um, that area has been independent, more or less. It's been out of the control of Baghdad, uh, and it's been self-ruled. So that, that I'll come back to this because this is very important in terms of looking at ISIS, um, which we'll do in a bit. So the 1990s, and I have just one slide, maybe one or two slides on the history, uh, was a very critical period for, uh, um, for um, the history of Iraq, the comprehensive, comprehensive sanctions undermined um, Iraq's social classes, um, it decimated its middle class, and it created the type of havoc that we see today, or that at least contributed towards that. Not many people speak about this, but as Iraqis, as people in Iraq and outside it, uh, will tell you that this was a critical period in Iraq's history in terms of complete undermining of the Iraqi people's ability to uh, um, um, assert the presence in Iraq, people actually took a step back from society and became much more religious, much more uh, uh, um, impoverished, uh, uh, the sanctions impoverished the country. Uh, um, and this is very important for understanding post-2003 Iraq. Um, it was the Iraq Liberation Act 1998 under Clinton that made regime change official policy of the US. Um, comprehensive sanctions and cost of bombing ruined Iraq's infrastructure. And 9-11 was the, um, the tragedy also for Iraq, not just for America, because that led to an, an invasion that many people actually protested, probably one of the largest protests in the world against this uh, uh, war. Uh, um, and I actually went to an event last week, uh, uh, headed, um, organized by Al Jazeera, it's called Head to Head, uh, and it'll be aired in about two weeks' time on um, Al Jazeera English. And, it was with Mahdi al-Hassan, Mahdi Hassan, I think, not al-Hassan, Mahdi Hassan. He had a conversation with the former security, national security advisor, uh, Mufaq al-Rubai. And one of the questions that was asked 
would we, you know, would you do this again, Moffat Corbet, as a security advisor, and a very important figure in post-2003, uh, post-2003, right? He said, we'll do it again, but um, uh, um, with the planning that um, Henry Hogger spoke about, um, there was no post-war planning. But what about the millions that have died? What about the hundreds of thousands that have been killed, uh, uh, Dr. Moffat Corbet? And, um, and as we've seen, is that we have elites, elites who only vote for themselves and not for Iraq. So we had an invasion in 2003 and an occupation, eventual occupation in Iraq, undermining the, the capacity of the state to govern. Um, 400,000 security intelligence army uh, um, um, individuals um, told to go home. Um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdad is probably one of them. Um, and, and effectively undermining the capacity of the Iraqi state to govern itself, creating a power vacuum that has undermined any of the projects that the CPA, CPA was only there for one year, um, and um, in, 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 in that background, Paul Bremer had CPA orders, Coalition Provisional Authority Order 1 and Order 2, the debathification of the country's uh, um, um, institutions, formal government institutions, and the disbanding of the Iraqi army. So effectively, you had no government in 2003 and 2004. Uh, um, that's why people look towards the CPA for a substitute government, and rightly so, for any semblance of security, they look towards anyone who could offer that. Um, so my argument here is that Iraq has been constructed post-2003 through an elite power arrangement, an exclusive political uh, order that has seen only a, a small number of individuals coming to government uh, um, based on sectarian um, identity, and that has been formalized in the Iraqi constitution. There are more, uh, um, um, there, there's more sort of say in the Iraqi constitution regarding identity, religious, ethnic, than there is um, on uh, focus on citizenship. Uh, the Iraqi constitution is very important, um, and it's part of the problem. Part of the vested interests that were there initially in 2003 and 2004 um, that led us to this kind of the chaos that we find because there are many vested interests in it and it needs to change for Iraq to move forward but there are individuals, very powerful individuals, constituencies in Iraq who do not want to see that um, uh, uh, constitution change. Um, and so in government you have a liberal representation. Everybody's represented in, 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 in the parliament. You know, the Yazidis are there, the Kurds are there, the Shia are there, everyone is there, the Sunnis are there. Uh, uh, and, and so what you find is that you have a parliament that is very democratic in terms of its liberal representation of Iraq's groups, but it cannot govern. And I'll get to that. Um, so you have a little representation, but little government and weak welfare provisions. Um, it was very easy um, to actually dominate the Iraqi institutions because they were largely crafted to suit Saddam's orders. So they were made, they were ordered, they were structured in a sort of top-down fashion. And when the political parties came into Iraq, they were very easily able to dominate and control these state institutions, effectively contesting the state within itself. Um, so in Parliament, you have a liberal uh, uh, representation, but the, I mean, Baghdad cannot govern five miles away. You cannot govern Southern City, which is just five miles away uh, from Baghdad itself. Uh, um, and so um, everyone's represented in government. You have weak political opposition, even though you have people like Ayad al-Alawi and others, and the Jafi, 
who say that, you know, um, we've been marginalized, but they've very much been part of the political structure in Iraq since 2003, and the money is too good for them. So they never take a step back and say, we're going to uh, um, um, develop an effective opposition to the current status quo, because the political parties are allocated as electoral windfalls, state institutions, and this is part of the problem. So political parties in, in 2003 rushed to the state, uh, not to society, um, and um, the political, uh, sorry, the institutions were captured by these political parties who fashioned themselves to Iraq's liberators and, 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 and future leaders, um, even though they hadn't been in Iraq, obviously, because of Saddam's uh, dictatorial policies and the absence of a civil society under Saddam for a long period of time. Um, so Iraq was ruled under an ethno-religious, ethno-politics type of uh, system that dominated uh, uh, the country's political system, no welfare, no projects, for 10 years after billions of dollars spent in Iraq. Okay. So um, money from the state was recycled back into civil society, strengthening this political structure. Unfortunately, even in my research, I've seen it in terms of the Iraq's domestic NGO sector, is that a lot of money from the, NGO, uh, from the government, from the oil revenues, from the captured state institutions are recycled back into the NGO sector, thus accentuating and entrenching this kind of political system that is very difficult to actually reform and change. You had an American search in 2006 and 2007, a very, very important history, a part of Iraq's history. Provincial reconstruction teams were actually state-like uh, institutions. They provided money to people on the ground, they provided services, they put billions of dollars, $100 billion, 2007, eight. Uh, 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 and given money effective becoming the state, I mean, in terms of offering services, this significantly reduced violence in the country, and it's something that Iraq is trying to do now, again, with ISIS. So state building hasn't addressed the continuing state-society disconnect. Um, you have a society, and you have state institutions, and the two are very different. Society is much more multicultural, uh, 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 in terms of it's less sectarian than what we see on the news. The state itself, because of the state actors, they have nothing uh, uh, to offer, but all these Iraq sectarian politics, which has accentuated the problems Iraq finds itself uh, uh, in. The in state agencies and, inst and institutions, again, these institutions haven't been reformed for 34 years uh, and haven't been able to provide the welfare that Iraq needs. Unemployment is rife, the security situation is quite dire, and it's created these, this sort of pattern of uh, um, a, a set of problems have created ungovernable spaces that have allowed uh, uh, organizations like ISIS to seize large territories in Iraq because uh, um, there is weak government uh, presence in those areas. Um, this is a picture of uh, um, operational presence of ISIS, as you can see, this is a better so you can see actually Baghdad of Iraq, actually the area under ISIS is actually larger than the rest of Iraq, if you look at it this way. So um, this is a problem uh, um, because Iraq's security services are very weak um, for reasons uh, um, I'm not sure that Iraq doesn't have really an effective air force. Iraq is paid for those airplanes and there's Apache helicopters and F-16s, but they haven't been delivered. If they had, maybe the situation would be very different. But in any case, would have still uh, um, this same sectarian system would have existed, uh, thus marginalizing a lot of people who are ordinary people like you and me, but now under the wing of ISIS, um, primarily because Baghdad hasn't been able to offer the type of services, such security, and welfare provisions that Iraq needs. 
And this is a picture of the torture. I'm not sure why I have this, but this is also very symbolic of Iraq's occupation, even though there are very good individuals from the CPA. But the system itself, right from the beginning, was rotten and was uh, doomed to fail, uh, primarily because this was an illegal war. So I think that's, that's about it. Thank you. Before I introduce the next speaker, I just want to ask Kabir if there's any way, because people are just very hot here, so if you can just do something about the temperature, if possible. Um, so our next speaker... Yes, at the end. We're going to have questions and answers. Um, our next speaker, who's, uh, who's going to be the first speaker on um, the theme of Iraqi economy, is Andrew Alderson. Andrew Alderson was a former investment banker with Lazard when he was called up as a Territorial Army TA officer in 2003 to serve in Iraq. Given his background in banking, he was appointed Director of Economic Planning and Development for the Coalition Provisional Authority South in Basra, with responsibility for all economic activity within the southern governorates of Basra, um, Maisan, and Amuthanan. An initial task was the distribution of funds for paying those in state employment, whose tasks rapidly expanded to include the development of the economic planning and development pillar of CPA South. With a large team, progress seemed assured until the British government decided that the demise of CPA in June 2004. A specialized team be dissolved at a remarkable variance to the US teams deployed in Baghdad. Following this, Andrew put his own business and provided logistic support on behalf of Midas Container Operations in Afghanistan. He is now CEO of Scooby McIntosh, a company operating in the engineering sector, providing support and services in the UK, Europe, the US, uh, South Africa, and the UAE. Andrew will present on his experiences in southern Iraq and his insights published in his book, Bank Rolling Cluster. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I'm sure that the technology is not going to Okay, I've got 10 minutes, so it's going to be a gallop, and you'll just have to <coughs> catch up on everything. I've got quite a few of my team actually, and it's nice to see them because I haven't seen them for about 10 years. There's a few people in the audience too. Um, as you said, I, I was a financier. I'm not part of the great institution of government. I found myself as a part-time soldier arriving in Basra in 2003. And on day four, the brigadier said, oh, do you know anything about finance? And as a director of a merchant bank, I kind of looked around and thought maybe I do more than anyone else. Um, that's pretty much what we walked into. Um, it was, I, I've got a few photos here, and it's really to try and give you that visualization I'm not here to argue whether we should or we shouldn't. You know what? We did, and but when we got there, it was a real job to do. And it was our, it was our job to get on and try and fix it. Um, does anyone know about finance? We may have a problem. Um, what had happened was we'd taken all the money out of the central bank, some looting, and secured it in the palace. Um, that was great, unfortunately, because we were a security organisation, that some of my military colleagues hadn't understood that you need the money to move around the economy to make the economy work. And so the first thing we found out was that because of the invasion, the money had stopped. And that really segues into the first point about security. Security and economics are similar. And if you want to achieve security, you have to achieve a stable economy. Now, that's easily said to the likes of you and I and say, well, economics, you know, great. But what does it mean? Well, actually, what it means is jobs, education, 
utilities, electricity, water, um, waste, um, black water. It means cash, and that means cash in your pocket so that you can go off and buy stuff and feed your family and, and get things done. Fuel for your car so you can go off and uh, go to work. And cooking at home. So we, I ended up flying up to Baghdad and saying to the, the then minister, look, we're a bit short of cash. The problem was, my job as an ex-banker was, well, what are we going to do? Well, we'll follow the money. So we, these are the central bank vaults. Those were the records. Um, in wars, you know, stuff gets blown up. And this was all the looting that took place. It meant that we had a jigsaw puzzle that someone had basically taken the picture away. And we were having to pick it, put it back together at some speed. Um, so we flew in, um, about $80 million in the first couple of weeks. And we then started um, paying people every which way to try and keep the economy going. Um, the problem, and one of the challenges when we talk about the economy there, was that we were basically working with a ministerial system that came through ministries, there were 26 odd ministries, and then directorates. Now this is a Soviet command model, so it is very much driven with very rigid structures as to who can do what and when, and there isn't a lot of private sector. Um, I know um, Paul was doing, um, sorry, Mike was doing quite a bit of that up in Baghdad. And the problem was 90% of the economy was driven by the oil sector. There wasn't much else. There were some state-owned enterprises, but as everyone said, they didn't start. So not only did we have to build our organization as we were figuring out what was going on, and you'll see that it started out with banking and planning, and then it but suddenly grew into, oh, Lord, we've got a much bigger problem. So we started to get people coming in, and then my team got a bit bigger, and the scale of the challenge got really clear. Um, and since I was the youngest there, the answer was, well, fine, you can get on with it. So that's how we got to know what this was really about. It was chaos outside. And you can see on the map on the wall, we were trying to work out how on earth this thing was put together. Um, that map on the back wall is literally the linkages as we were trying to work out who was plugged into who. There were 165 state-owned enterprise, or sorry, state entities in Basra alone. By the time we finished, we mapped all of southern Iraq. One of the tragedies of us coming out in June 2004 was that I did no handover. I handed nothing over. I was simply told, get in an airplane and come home. You're not, no longer required. It's all right. Give it to the Iraqis because they're ready. So, from my point of view, I will echo exactly what Henry said. We actually, in 2003 and 4, and I take some of you will, may remember this, that we were sitting somewhat more relaxed in the UK because we were saying, you know what, we're, we're not, it's not brilliant, but it's better than it was in the North. And I believe that the key to that security piece was because, and stability was because it was about segregating the genuinely nasty from the disaffected. And if you achieve that, then guess what? The military and the police can go after the really nasty bullets. But actually, the people like you and I, if, if we've got money in our pockets and we can go to work and we can heat and we've got fuel for the car and the house is warm in winter, we're like, leave us alone. We're happy. We don't want to be involved. But when, you, when that breaks down 
that's when the problems start. Here, this is the sort of first signs of trouble you can see in looting. Passport office and record. Yeah, lots of things about, well, what are we going to do? Well, you're pretty much starting from the bottom up. Um, for those of you who are here in the university, that's what the university looked like. Now, that wasn't bomb damage, that was looting. That was a, a society that was pretty pissed off with its lot and just said, right, we're going to take it out on the institutions that we've had to live with. <coughs> infrastructure, let's not talk about infrastructure. I see that picture and I still gag. <coughs> it's not the picture that's the issue, it's the smell. It's 45 degrees and you've got open sewers right through Bosworth. Um, and no electricity. I can't tell you what it is to like to live in a country with no electricity and it's 45 degrees. Um, no logistics or supplies. This country had been smashed, and let's not be under any illusions, it wasn't just. The coalition bombing, yes, some, but you know, this is not. This was much bigger than that. The funny thing is, Iraq is a middle-income country, if you speak to the development guys, and they have... Um, they have a lot of infrastructure. The challenge is getting the money to get get money back into these institutions so that it so that it works. At the same time, we built our own institution um, and lots of projects. Here is some of the stuff we got up to. Um, we started getting things going again, and we interacted with the ordinary people. Um, it's kind of crazy standing here today, but at the time, at the age of 36, I had a budget of 1.6 billion. And for those of you, that's somewhat easy in government terms, but it was all in cash. We didn't have any bank accounts. It was physical cash coming in by helicopter every month. And um, not everything went to plan, and yet it got a bit bumpy at the time. But actually, the guys got on with it. We got on with it, and at the end of it, we built an interim government, and that was Sir Hillary's team, sadly, to know what it was, and two, and my team. And we helped stabilise southern Iraq, but I would argue that we finished before the job was done, and the roots of where we are at are because the country is really still in three parts, and if we can take, I'll take questions on how the money absolutely impacts the future of this country in my opinion. Um, we were brought home by the UK government in 2004 and simply told you're no longer required. Um, and I would argue the problems down there, the issues are social, they're not, they're not military. Um, so the tragedy for me is that we've made all the same mistakes in Afghanistan, but that's a whole other subject. Um, and I've spent six years up there too. Thank you very much. And we actually stick to this time without even me having to stop. Um, Dr. Shalabi is going to talk about... Uh, Dr. Shalabi, uh, who is a UK-based independent consultant for the energy sector, with focus on the feasibility planning evaluation and value additions of projects related to the utilization and the processing of oil and gas, particularly in the production and generation of fuels, petrochemicals and power. Um, uh, he uh, obtained his, his uh, bachelor's in chemical engineering from Imperial College, 
where he also uh, obtained his doctorate uh, in chemical engineering from the same university. From 1970 to 1990, he gained professional experience in the oil, gas, and petrochemical sectors with Shell Canada and Kuwait Institute of Scientific Research and Advisory. Since 1990, Dr. Sharibi has been an independent international petroleum consultant to major international and national oil and energy companies and offered these services in the forms of strategy development, planning, asset, asset and investment evaluations, and contract negotiations. Currently, he is a fellow of the Iraq Energy Institute, which advises the Iraqi Ministry of Oil and the Iraqi, um, and the Iraqi Parliament. He is also a fellow of the UK Energy Institute. Dr. Sharabi will dwell on his experiences in Iraq during the past few years and provide a much-needed update on the relationship between the state system and the oil sector in Iraq. Also, he will provide us with a diagnosis of Iraq's pillars of sustainability. Uh, I'm going to speak from here. I haven't got a proper presentation with the other gentlemen. And uh, let me start by saying this year is uh, 2014, which represents 100 years since the start of the evil side of development of Iraq. Why is it? Because in 2012, the British were turning their battleships from using coal to using oil instead, which is fuel oil for running the ships. And when Churchill was asked, where are we going to get the oil from? We are a coal country, we have so much of it. He said, go to the Persian Gulf at the time. Go for it. Of course, the, the war started, as you know, this year. We just celebrated the, the, or the uh, call it, uh, remember, remembrance of the poppies. I see my colleague next to me which really uh, took us into the dimension of getting uh, two big countries at the time, that is Britain and France, to begin to dream on how to split the goodies from the war, World War I. And in fact, it started with the, what uh, they had as uh, in, you know, so 1968, they started talking about if we win the war, who's going to get what of the Ottoman Empire. And of course, this is where Iraq used to be as we know it today. It used to be the ingredients in Iraq at the time. They were three, what we, we call, wilayats or regions. One is Mosul, the other is Baghdad, and the other is Basra. Basra was an extended form where it belonged to the uh, British under, already under British kind of mandate that, that decision-making was done within India as a, instead of the White Hall here. But um, between them they decided, okay, uh, yeah, we can split, but the eyes of Britain at the time, obviously, they knew already there's oil, by the way, in Iraq and, of course, also in Iran. Yeah. So we, we started with the sites, uh, we, we started with the sites Pico, with the French and the English, where they decided how to split the things. But things were not going that well at the time. So they started promising, the British started promising some Arab dignitaries from uh, Mecca, and as the Hashemites, to actually, if they extend help in uh, 
repelling the or uh, sort of fighting with the, the British against the Ottoman Empire. We will really secure your, your presence and we'll, we'll, we'll give you the share. We'll give you, like, you know, we work together and you'll be the leaders in the, what our portion of the Middle East. Well, as it happened by, uh, uh, I guess, 1918, there, uh, there was a good success where uh, a gentleman from the Hashemite, who became later the king of Iraq, Faisal, King Faisal I, he arrived to Syria with the British contingency. Uh, unfortunately for him, uh, to, uh, Syria was divided to be part of uh, France, and France somehow didn't want to give uh, sort of Syria away. They wanted to be stay under a mandate, and therefore they kicked out in a way, gently or otherwise, uh, the king. Uh, he became king of Iraq. But Iraq also was under a mandate in 1920, which is the end of the war, and that mandate was for the what's called the southern Mesopotamia, which is the majority of Iraq, but uh, Mosul was not yet uh, acknowledged as part of Iraq. Okay? So Iraq really is a creation, with its existing boundary and the mix of people, their cultures, it was a creation by the British in particular. Okay? But that giving Iraq what's so-called sovereignty did not come because the British liked to, there was a revolt in Iraq in 1920, and there was a heavy casualty from the British, and totally unsustainable financially, militarily. So I'd like you to think of Iraq with its boundary, with its people and its composition, from what the British have left at that time. Fortunately for Iraq, Faisal being kicked out of Syria, his main strength was he, he did not belong to any of the factions in Iraq. So his, he didn't have any uh, sentiments or emotional attachment to a particular sector within the communities of Iraq. Okay? So that's a, a good stabilizing factor which is missing now. It's already been highlighted that it's a weakness of the governing system because it's uh, siding with one this this sector of the country or the other. The other thing, he didn't want to repeat people kicking him out as the French did in Syria. So he wanted to perform. And the other thing, he actually got along very well with the British and got them to develop institutions. I hear the word institution. It's a development that was a highlight within the Iraqi development then. But interestingly, from what I hear from some of the elder generation in Iraq, that during the time he took uh, the kingdom uh, as a king, in uh, October 2019-20, he actually was worried about one thing. Because Iran and Turkey did not give acknowledgement to his rule as a king. So he used to walk in the palace back and forth, and people asked, why are you worried? You're the king of Iraq. 
He said, I don't care. Already the big powers have acknowledged you as a king. He turns around and says, I don't care of giving away from me. I care about my neighbors, how they treat me. Okay? But keep in mind one thing. At the time of the creation of Iraq, there were fundamental things happening. Turkey was a retreat because of the war, they lost it. Russia, that used to have influence on Iran, was in a mess because of uh, uh, the Tsar. Was, there was the October 1917 revolution, and therefore they pulled away from supporting <coughs> the Allies in World War I uh, against Germany. And that gave a ticket for Britain to actually negotiate the boundaries of Iraq with Iran, the boundaries of, uh, uh, with, with Turkey, of course, <coughs> the rest is between the French and the, so the Anbar and the rest of Iraq was kind of settled between France and, uh, and Britain. Okay? So moving forward a little bit, so we see Iraq, it turned out to be a very harmonious society. It is really a melting pot of various nationalities. We have Kurds, we have uh, within uh, sort of religions, you have uh, Christians, you have Jews, you have uh, within Islam, you have Shiites, you have Sunnis, you have all kinds of things. Everyone was getting along very well. Of course, like anything else in the world, there are here issues once in a while and they <coughs> managed to be resolved. Okay? Now, let's study what was the support to Iraq as a system. It used to be like Britain. The government derives its income from taxation of the people. And therefore, they have to create responsibility of the institution to serve the people. Okay? There is no oil, even though the, the oil was kind of in the back of Britain secured in its mind, and sure enough, there were the oil companies actively uh, exploring for oil in Iraq from the, I think the first oil battle came into being in 1926-27 in that period. Okay? So moving forward, so that is a, a structure of forcing democracy on the, on the, on the, uh, uh, on the way you rule. Why? Because you're really you need to derive your support from the people who are paying you the tax to rule. Then, I guess uh, Iraq started. Uh, okay. Iraq started seeing things differently when uh, Mossadegh in 1952 in Iran was kind of causing trouble with the oil, and the oil companies. Uh, switched off the valves in Iran and decided to actually pump as much as possible from the south of Iraq and, of course, continued development of Kirkuk fields. And that, fortunately, because the mentality of the institutions was really what to do with that money. So they created uh, a, a huge vision for the development of Iraq, developed jointly with the uh, what's equivalent to the League of Nations at the time, highly experienced people that actually walk the talk, not talk the talk as our friends did in 2003. They actually walk the talk to create a master plan for the development of Iraq. 
And unfortunately, even today, that master plan, we're talking more than 60 years later, the master plan still has ingredients in it that have not been implemented. Okay? So, then we had a, a revolution in Iraq, so there was a master plan for development. Lots of projects happened, beginning of highways, things like that. Uh, and then uh, 2000, uh, I, I guess, uh, in uh, 1958, there was a revolution in Iraq where it, it crystallized, it enriched what I call the nationalistic feeling within the Iraqis. So all, all along there was a build-up between the developing creation of Iraq. Iraqis were really very nationalistic. You can get someone who's an engineer to work for nothing as long as it's serving the country. That used to be the vocabulary of the majority of people who are really willing to contribute to Iraq. That's our fathers and our grandfathers. Okay? So, 58, the military took over the rule and it was, uh, I guess, it had continued creating and hammering the importance of uh, nationalistic feeling for development of Iraq. And back to oil as the devil, what, we, what I call the resource curse for Iraq. The coming of the Ba'athist was nothing more than the foreign companies with the support of their governments not liking law, uh, which at the time, Qasim put a law saying that give me that land you don't want to explore and military activity in the area. So oil was the beginning of the camps. Baptist came, they continued a little bit with the fact that the money of oil, which was pocket in a special <coughs> for the development of Iraq, they started needing some of it. And of course, once you dip your hands in that money, you begin to take more and more. And the story began. And the minute you have that, you reverse the ruling situation where now the government has the money and people become parasitic on the government. They don't need the taxes. So you become a, a liability. The citizen of Iraq, after the oil money became the tool of the rulers to control their, uh, anyone who's opposing them, okay? So that curse started coming, and we were all optimistic 2003 is going to correct that situation. Instead, Andrew said it very well. Helicopters full of cash coming in boxes, given to soldiers, given to this Tom, Dick, and Harry. And guess what, what that money does? It puts ingredients in your mind. Why am I working? I got a gun, I demonstrate I can do things, give me some money. And that's the continuation. Now, the minute you have two, three people enjoying the benefit of the cash, you need what our colleagues so far have indicated. So nothing really is surprising of what's happening in Iraq today. Okay? All what happened is the boundary that was drawn between all Iraq 
1920. The Americans want to revise it for one way or the other because now Britain and France are nothing in comparison to the superiority in power, etc. For and the interest of America more in oil. Okay, so we are living with the resources. Now you tell me, is that a theory? No. There are books written, and I'm very much keen about the, the because I'm in oil, I understand fully what the resource cost is. And there are systematic things, I can read them quickly because there is a time which says zero minutes. So <laughs> that, that doesn't help me, but I'll leave it to the question and answer, reading you the symptoms, and we go tick by tick as whether we have been able to get away from the resource curse, which means a cancer to the society, and there's no way out of it. Countries that went that way have not recovered yet. Okay? So it's gloom and doom for Iraq unless there is the nationalistic feeling comes in and people with skills, and there are many of them who want to see Iraq. But whether the big powers that interfere, regional powers that have more interest, will accept what I say, is that I'll leave it. who is an independent consultant specializing in feasibility studies, mainly but not wholly in the industrial sector and geographically focusing on the Middle East. In such capacity, he was invited to join the CPA South in January 2004, where he was tasked with looking after the state-owned enterprise assets in the four governorates of southern Iraq. These included the principal steel plant, the largest petrochemical plant in the Middle East. At the time it was built and commissioned, as well as plants for the manufacture of paper, cement, fertilizers, engineering facilities, and assorted associated infrastructure. Following this, the dissolution of the CPA, he returned to consulting and spent some time evaluating state assets in Kosovo for privatization as one instance. He returned to Iraq in 2006 with an evaluation of the pharmaceutical sector and a rewrite of the cement sector for USAID project SDHAF. Subsequently, he was director of the Small Business Development Center pillar under Tijara, with over 20 units in all the main urban areas of Iraq. He left Iraq in 2009 and has remained an independent consultant on projects as diverse as large mining projects in Saudi Arabia and development zones in Bangladesh and Afghanistan. Currently, Paul is a research student at SOAS. Paul will discuss some of the aspects of the post-invasion management of the industrial and manufacturing economy and the impact of an ideology on post-conflict reconstruction. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. What I want to do is actually something slightly different. I would like to, um, from our previous speakers, I'd like to give you a different perspective of Iraq, um, of an Iraq which is an industrialized country which has basically been knocked back very badly. So what I'd like to do is give you a little bit of history. Um, I'll cover a little bit of the ground that Dr. Chanavi has already covered, but I think it's quite useful to get a different perspective on or over the sort of average consideration of Iraq just simply as uh, an oil-rich nation. Um, just brief background, we've got a little bit of beef there, but just in terms of um, question and answer sessions later, I was in CPA first of all in Basra in the first part of 2004.
Then I spent the best part of three years in Baghdad with USA, with um, two big USA projects, um, Istihar and Tijara, doing industrial development studies and then running small business development centres. Um, in terms of Iraq, brief, brief history of Iraq industrialisation. In the mid-40s, i.e. During, during the Second World War, um, Iraq really didn't have very, have very, have very much industry at all. Um, the country was considered very poor, it was very rural, and the focus was on actually improving agriculture. One of these most significant, um, if we can call it industrial projects there, was infra infrastructure development. So there was a lot of work done on re-establishing the dams, on working on the canals, uh, to basically re-enrich the country from an agricultural perspective. And even by 1949, they're still saying, um, aside from oil, there is no industry of any importance in Iraq. One of the key aspects, I think, about the um, invasion and then the latter the occupation of Iraq is people don't always realise how much influence the British and indeed the American advisers had within within the development of, of Iraq, even in the 50s, before the just before the revolution. People remember that Iraq became independent and was recognised by the League of Nations in 1932. They don't realise that on every development call, right up until the time of the revolution in 1958, there were at least two or three British and American advisers actually effectively running the development of the country. And it's important to remember that because we seem to have lost, we lost that history when we went into Iraq. Hence no planning. Um, what did Iraq actually have in the 40s? Cotton gins, mills, some uh, weaving, cigarette factories. One of the largest and the biggest development within Iraq, actually from almost the turn of the century to the 50s, was actually manufacturing cigarettes. And, right, different things, there were various plans, the development board put up various ideas for um, structural changes to, to the country. Cement plants, obviously, for construction, various mills. Um, bone mill fertilizer plant, a small section steel mill, flour mills, and one of the interesting things I always love in this are the date boxes, because dates were the one single significant export that the country had at that time, apart from one. Massive date, date farms in, in, in southern Iraq. Unfortunately, uh, most of those got destroyed during the various, various conflicts from uh, Iran-Iraq war, you know, through everything else. Now, the interesting thing is, in terms of the reports that Dr. Shalabi mentioned, you have two significant ones. Um, you have Lord Salter, who was a, a Brit diplomat, uh, who wrote a book in 1955, specifically talking about the industrial development of Iraq. And then the development board of Iraq, with all those nice British and American gentlemen sitting on it, brought in Arthur D. Little to do a very, very big study, which they then published in 1956. And uh, funny enough, I have just got a copy of that because um, there's only two copies left in the UK. Arthur D. Little do not have them in the States or in Germany, where they had offices. Uh, there's one in the Bodleian Library. So an enormous expense I had a copy. <laughs> but the point is I'm going to make is that these were, as Dr. Trevata, these, these are, in the mid-1950s, this was the development plan for Iraq. This is the plan that still is still extant today. Come 1958, however, we had the revolution, the deposition of the monarchy, removed all the British advisers, everybody was got kicked out. 
Declaration of the Republic, Institution of the Arab Socialist Model. Now, this is, now, this is very important because when we arrived in Iraq in 2003, this is a piece of history that seemed to have escaped us. That the state through the public sector should lead the process of social and economic development. Everything came under the power of the aegis of the state. Now, interestingly enough, these are just a few graphs, and I know I won't have a lot of time to go through all of these, but this is just to show that there was development actually going on in Iraq. Through a variety of sectors there, obviously agriculture is still important, mining, quarry, manufacturing, <coughs> construction, there is stuff happening. These are all the different sectors, and if anybody wants sets of these slides, they're more than welcome later. Um, that just shows you how much it's worth in then than current um, Iraqi denial terms. So we had the revolution of 1958 and then everything was nationalised in 1964. In 1958 what happened was they simply took the very large units. By 1964 they nationalised everything. Absolutely everything. And this is, you know, basically the forerunner of, of how Andrew described the plethora of state institutions that were extant in Basra when we <coughs> arrived in 2003. These are just some, just some tight notes on um, Arab socialist model. This is a model which was um, endemic, as it were, throughout that part of the world at the time, uh, from Syria, Egypt, etc. And for those of you who are interested in the historical uh, context of the region, this was going to lead to the greater um, Arabic state, which, as we know, Basically, just really fell apart, never really took off. Basically, what this tells you is that the state is going to actually influence everything and have total control over everything rate, wages, rent, uh, foreign trade, absolutely everything is going to come under the influence of the state. And we now have a total centrist command economy. Um, public sector, there you are, is just, just reinforcing banking, insurance, and cement, and asbestos, and tobacco, funny enough. I love that. Um, the drivers. Again, as I, said, as I just said, you know, Egypt, Communist Party, there was a very substantial Communist Party at, at that time. Um, you had a lot of ideology being, being, being bred. Now, one of the things I would actually like to mention here, this is something that happened in the 1950s, early 1960s. Mr. Saddam had not arrived on the scene yet. There are American authors who will tell you that Saddam was running the state enterprises as his own particular fiefdom. In fact, if anything, it was exactly the opposite, because he raided them for different reasons, by maintaining um, exclusive cash, keeping money away from them. Um, then we come after 1958, all the, all the Western advisors being kicked out were now going to turn to the, uh, turn to, to the Soviet, Soviet Union. And so the Soviet Union, we, we signed something in the region, I think it was 15 economic agreements with the Soviet Union, covering a whole variety of different issues. Very, very common practice at that time. Um, right throughout the world, actually, in, in terms of all those countries that lent uh, to the Soviet model. So um, they basically just bought into the Arthur D. Little reports and uh, the other reports that I've mentioned. Um, I'm repeating myself just a bit here, nationalisation. Interesting thing is, uh, this is something that always fascinates me, is there are no proper feasibility studies for any of the industry and industrial uh, areas, sectors that were going to be, um, which were being promoted basically. 
It was all done by diktat from the centre. No, basically nothing was discussed. It was just actually done through the development board, which at that time consisted of between six to eleven individuals. Um, the only member of the Iraqi government being part of that development board was actually the finance minister. <coughs> what do you have at this time? And this is a massive issue. There's a massive issue then, still an issue there now. Flight of capital, managers, and skills. There's an abs absolute lack of, of these things uh, within Iraq. So, right, what's the next thing to hand? We're going to do this development, and I'm going to give you some sort of hard uh, stuff to into what we did, or what they did at that time. But then what happened? Iran, Iraq war. Invasion of Kuwait, first Gulf War, sanctions, second Gulf War. As it's already been said, this led to 30 years, 30 years of lack of investment, 30 years of um, lack of maintenance, of the infrastructure as it was being developed, actually then running down. Oh yes, there's your model CPA set up this one. And just going back to the CPA South and what we were actually responsible for, and we were responsible for them, under, I think most of you should have heard of the Hague Convention and our requirement as invaders and occupiers to actually maintain the assets of the country as best as we can for the purposes of the people. Um, PC1, largest petrochemical complex at the time it was built. Employees, uh, these are official figures, so probably more actually because there were an awful lot of people being signed on to payrolls left, right and centre. But this was substantial, and I'm going to come on to so one slide I'm going to come on to is the decisions that CPA made and why it became very important. I just wanted to give you some figures there to see the, the, the number of people that um, well, I had to deal with. Really. So you have 4,000 in PC1, massive petrochemical complex. The steel mill, 3,300. Southern Fertilizer Company, 3,000, give or take. You know, we really don't worry about it on the payroll side, do we? And then Ibn Majid, one of the one of the smaller but engineering companies, sixteen hundred people. That's just it, that's Basel. And those and I want to come on to some of the sophistication of some of these sites at the moment. I've got time. Uh, you have three minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Maysan, paper factory, sugar factory, vegetable oil, decar, big aluminium plant. Very, very important because that, that aluminium plant supplies all the cabling for all the electrical distribution systems throughout Iraq. Uh, Iraq does not have any um, mineral resources for things like aluminium, steel, iron ore, or anything like that. And so what used to happen is that all scrap, everything was, was, was pulled together was by order of the state. All metal scrap had to either go to the aluminium plant or to the, or actually aluminium plant, aluminium copper, and steel went to the uh, state steel factory. And so that's just another microphone art for you. Interestingly enough, oil, Notice how um, the red lines are industrial development, the blue line is uh, the US dollar uh, real value of um, oil exports, and therefore uh, it just demonstrates how uh, the, the um, industrial, industrial development goes in tandem, more or less, with, with um, uh, monies arising from oil. Oops, going on one of the things I just wanted to show, because this is, this, is, this is the industrial complex south of Basra, and I just wanted to point out to you that this is in fact, this is centrally planned, this is how you do industrial development in big time, because you've got a whole set, now let's go to the next slide before I let them out, 
you have a complete system here for the management of, of imports, exports, power <coughs> management, and infrastructure development. At the bottom, you've got Uncasa the port. You've got the port of Azubair. The Southern Fertilizer Company, the Steel Company, all have direct um, conveyor links straight into the port. So they can import sponge iron to the iron, uh, to the steel plant for production of, of irons and steels. And you've got uh, conveyors from the fertilizer uh, plant straight to the port so they can export fertilizer. This is an area of about 30 square kilometers, so it's quite significant. These conveyors are five, six, seven kilometers long. You've got the gas lines, you've got the railway line going straight down to the port of Umkasa. You've got another line going into the port of Azabea. Just want to demonstrate that this, that this is a country that was quite capable of actually building a sophisticated industrial infrastructure, which a lot of people vaguely seem to have forgotten about. This is just a couple of pictures to show you the sort of scale of some of these plants. <coughs> this is a Southern Fertilizer Company. Okay, relatively, well, it's not small by today's terms, medium-sized, but uh, two, two production lines producing a million tonnes of urea fertiliser a year. Just to give you an idea. Another little point here. The yellow line are exports. This country was actually exporting fertiliser up until 1991. This is the port of Azerbaijan. As you can see, now this shows you some of the conveyors, and those heaps of stuff, that sponge iron, which is imported from, imported from China for the manufacture of um, iron products in the steel factory. Those structures in the background are the conveyors that take the sponge iron directly from the port into the holding yards in the steel factory. These are just more pictures. Just to give you an idea of some of the numbers of people employed, and I'm hurrying. These are just some of the... Right. CPA decisions, which had major issues. Debathification. We lost all the managers of all the heavy plant. We had nobody who could actually manage uh, a petrochemical complex which had 10 production lines. You had floor managers effectively, you had production people, but you didn't have general managers. None of these plants could even be described as a business. They're all run centrally from Baghdad. It was a nightmare. We actually ended up in situations where I went in one day and discovered that they had elected themselves their own workers' committee, which I then had to deal with. This was not a fun day. Then the other thing from Baghdad, of course, everybody talked about privatisation. And we had wonderful people like Mr. Fogel <coughs> of CPA Baghdad, who said we're going to privatise every company by September 2003. He was disabused of that idea quite quickly. Um, just so other things were going on, we had this project management office, and actually Andrew knows far more about this than I do, but this is just to show you some of the actual projects that are doing. Now, note that these are all infrastructure development projects. It's nothing to do with factories, nothing to do with estate sector. This is all to do with infrastructure. Well, can you wrap up, please? <laughs> yeah, sure. And what I did want to say, though, just before we end, and Andrew mentioned this, is when, we all, when they closed the CPA in June 2004, DFID did actually produce a plan which told us all about the wonderful things that they were going to do. And I don't think it happened. <laughs> Thank you very much.